Welcome to What Happened to You, the podcast that interviews footballers of the past today about their interviews from the past. Don't worry, it will all make sense when you listen. On this episode, supported by The Set Pieces, we talk to former Stoke City, Everton, Sunderland, Newcastle United, Fulham and England midfielder Paul Bracewell about his focus on interview for Shoot Magazine from around 1983 and a player profile in the Everton programme from the 1985-86 season. You can find the original interviews on our Twitter feed at WHTYPod and on our dedicated channel over at The Set Pieces, www.thesetpieces.com. Full name? Paul William Bracewell. Birthplace and date? Uh, 19th of the 7th, 62, Heswell. Uh, height? 5 foot 10. And do you still weigh 11 stone? Just a little bit over. <laughs> Paul, welcome and thanks for coming on to What Happened to You. How's things? Fine, thank you. Um, working down in London at the moment. Well, as I explained when I lured you on, uh, lured you on to the podcast, uh, is that we're going to look back at a couple of player profiles of yours from the 1980s and pick out some of the highlights. And we'll start by asking how, according to your player profile in the Everton programme in 1986, how a lad from the Wirral, with Everton and Liverpool, just a hop, skip and a jump away, comes to support Manchester United of all clubs? I think I remember doing it, and it wasn't really... Um, it was George Best... I'll be honest, he was the one that uh, really excited me and obviously played for Man United. But George Best was the player at the time that I really thought he was the best thing, you know. Well, in your interview in Shoot from around 1983, and you're still at Stoke, judging by the kit you're wearing in the photo, uh, you say your biggest influences, apart from your parents, were your old PE teacher, Bob Ellis, friends, Phil Stones, and yeah. youth coach, Tony Lacey. Uh, how important were they in helping you become a professional footballer? And was there anything else you fancied doing after leaving school if you hadn't made it? Um, they've got you down in the interviewers fancying being a window cleaner. Well, sort of going back to the first one, um, Phil Stokes, he was the manager uh, of a non-league cycle, Edgman Rangers. Um, so I was playing men's football at the age of 15. Um, Tony Lacey, um, was my first youth coach when I was at Stoke. And the other one was, I've forgotten, who did you say? Uh, your first one was your PE teacher. Yes. Uh, Bob Ellis, um, like most lads, I think, who were involved at school, he was the PE teacher um, and was very instrumental in, in helping me um, get a chance to, to, to go and play for, for Stoke. He was very close to, um, at the time, uh, Bobby Robson, Sir Bobby Robson at Ipswich. Uh, one or two lads had gone from that school uh, down to Ipswich as a trial, but um, I went. I went to uh, I went to Stoke. Well, talking about Stoke uh, in the early eighties, uh, it must have been a fairly good place to learn your trade because uh, it, it had a decent record of producing good young players around that time. Um, apart from yourself, there were the likes of Lee Chapman, Adrian Heath, uh, and Steve Bowles, yeah. who all went on to better things. Yeah, I mean, at the time, uh, Alan Zoom was the manager. Uh, Howard uh, Kennell was first in coach. So further along down my career. Obviously, you know, went went to Everton with, with Howard, who I knew. Dennis Smith was playing uh, centre half at the time. I went to play for Dennis at, at Sunderland as well. So there was quite a few little sort of combinations there, even when at a younger age. If we if we step away from the football just for a little while now, um, in your interviews uh, that we've got here, the per, the people you most wanted to meet were Pele, 
and the Queen. Um, did you fulfil either of those um, ambitions? Or if not, who was the most famous non-footballing person you met through football? Um, obviously playing it, uh, in cup finals, you know, we met some royalty people there. Um, Pele, because obviously he's one of the greatest players ever lived, or he's still, still alive. Um, obviously with the Queen, that might have been if I was going to get knighted or something like that, mm-hmm. but obviously that's not happened yet either. Um, but no, it's just when you're young, you, you have aspirations of, you know, set, set the bar high, really. Uh, if we move on to your musical tastes that, that you've given us in these interviews, um, you've put down Michael Jackson, Elkie Brooks, Go West and Paul Young. Now, that, that's a list that just screams the 1980s. Um, I'm going to take a punt and say you don't get the old Elkie Brooks 45s out much these days. No, no um, I must admit, I would, I would probably, it was probably because she was such a good-looking woman at the time, I would imagine, that one. And, and funny enough, in my days at Fulham, I actually met Michael Jackson. So um, he came onto the pitch uh, with Mohammed, walked around the pitch, and we actually had a picture with him after the game, uh, which I've now got at home. So it just tells you it's a small world, even Michael Jackson. Yeah, amazing. I, I imagine that working with Mohamed Al-Fayed as a boss um, could be interesting at times. Yes, you could say that. Every Thursday I had to go to Harris the meeting and uh, the meetings wouldn't last very long, but they were at times very interesting and very strange, but also um, he, he was good. He was, he was good with me, even <laughs> though he did sack me. <laughs> um, if we look at the, the cars that you were owned, that you owned back then, um, I don't know if you're still a car man, Paul, but at, at Stoke, you were driving a Ford Escort XR3i. But by the time you were flying I at Everton a couple of years later, uh, and remember, they were the reigning league champions at the time, you've seemingly been downgraded to a Fiesta XR2. Um, I take it you didn't have an agent negotiating your terms for you then? <laughs> I think that was, I think it was my wife's car. <laughs> um, but no, always, always a, a, a good sort of like always like most lads like like nice cars. Um, at the moment, I'm I'm working down at uh, at Tottenham, so my transport is on the train. So uh, um, that that's my transport at the moment. Now, if we, if we look at your hobbies, it says you were into sailing. That's quite an unusual hobby for a footballer of any era to have. Are you, are you still still getting out on the water? It used to be from my from my parents. We used to go to a place called Bala Lake uh, when I was younger. Uh, those people that I don't know if they're, if they're into sailing, we used to have a mirror dinghy and a fireball and a laser. I used to love it. Um, and, and, and to be honest, on the laser, it was a single boat. It was great for your fitness because that was, that was hard work. But uh, no, very much a fan of, uh, uh, of sailing. Um, my parents uh, moved to Abu Dhabi and my dad had a, a yacht out there. They've, they've obviously sold it. Um, but no, I, I really enjoyed that, that sort of time in uh, growing up. Now, in the 1986 interview, in which uh, your hairstyle is remarkably sharp and you're wearing that instantly recognisable Everton shirt with the white bib on the front, um, you'd acquired the nickname Chuck. Um, Now, I think everybody in football knows he was Brace, but tell us the story about where the nickname Chuck came from. Well, I think in those days, the the, the hair was long and and behind the ears, and we'd gone away and I came back pre-season and my wife was a hairdresser. And she chopped it all off, and it was a, it was like an American style chuck, and that's where that nickname came from. And to be honest, there was a few eyebrows raised, but then I think I set the tone in Liverpool as a PB haircut, you know. So I got quite <laughs> famous at one stage. 
Uh, well, something else you'd acquired in the time between those two interviews was a bunch of winners' medals and a few England caps, thanks to that move to Goodison Park. Um, it was an incredible few years you had at Everton because uh, I, I heard it once described as a team without stars, and yet Howard Kendall blended youth and experience and players of different strengths into probably the best team in Europe at the time. Um, give us a sense of what those two or three years in the mid-80s were like, um, the players you lined up with, and, and what ingredients made that era so special, because it, it is Everton's greatest ever side. I think what, the best way to sum it up was obviously the film that, that we made recently that's been released, you know, Howard's Way, um, I think it was 35 years ago since that sort of period, and nearly everybody was on the film, everybody turned up for the showing, so after 35 years to get that together, I think that sort of shows you what type of people and, and, and team it was to, to be able to make that film and everybody get back to the, together again. Stephen away from Pickering. Yes! Another superb goal. Bracewell with that pass picked out Stephen. He did his job on the ball and finished in explosive fashion. A fabulous goal again by Everton. Yeah, and it, it took such a lot, didn't it, for to produce a side like that, also to topple Liverpool, however brief that period was, um, given how dominant they'd been for 10 or 15 years up to that point, uh, and especially with them being from just across Stanley Park, it, it just was such a feat of Howard Kendall's in being able to to get that all together and for it to... Because he, remember, he was under pressure, wasn't he? You, you, there was that famous game at Oxford yeah. where supposedly had, had Everton lost, uh, he, uh, he might have lost his job and, and history would have been very different. Yeah, I think when I joined them, they just won the FA Cup. And you speak to any club or manager or players, the first one's always the most difficult one. And, and they managed to get the FA Cup. We went on one of the charity shield. And like you said, the, the rest is history. So once you've had a taste of success, that dressing was a, you know, they wanted more, you know, day in, day out. And, and it was like you said, it was a fantastic team to play in, but also fantastic lads as well. Um, in the, the 1983 shoot interview, uh, your most memorable match was your full debut for Stoke against Liverpool at Anfield. Um, in the 86 interview, do you remember what you would have said as being your um, most memorable Everton match to that point? I would, Im I would imagine it would have been a Bayern Munich game. Yes. Off the top of my head. But yeah. I think it, it, it's, I was 17 years of age and, you know, you always remember your, your, your debut. And again, it, you know, it happened to be at Anfield, you know, and then eventually playing for Everton against, against Liverpool. But uh, I remember coming on on a Wednesday night, I think it was away at uh, Wolverhampton, but my first full debut was, was at Anfield against... I remember Terry and Matt giving me a nice elbow in the second half, just, just round about the nose. Yeah, that was in the days, of course, when you could get away with giving somebody a, a, a lively jab early on without any retribution from a referee. Well, I think in those days it was welcome to the welcome to the real world, Brace. You know, he was uh, he was renowned for getting in the box scoring goals, and one of my jobs was to stop him from doing that. And I can imagine second half he was a little bit annoyed that he had this young seventeen year old lad running with him everywhere. So he, he politely let me know he was it was a game. Well, in that same interview, and, and talking of sort of hard players, uh, you said your favourite other player was Andy Gray, who had moved on from Everton by this time uh, to be replaced by Gary Lineker. Uh, and Gray was such a talismanic character in that 84-85 side, even alongside 
people like Peter Reed and, and Neville Southall and all the other characters were, that were in that dressing room. What was it about Grey that was so, um, was so special or so magnetic? He was a leader and he was a winner. Uh, and like you said, you mentioned your lads there. When, when you get that combination um, of people in the dressing room, it, it's very, very powerful. Um, we went through a stage where, you know, coming off at half-time, you'll know it wasn't good enough. Um, the Bayern Munich game, again, going down 1-0, you know, people come out setting off and there was only one team who was ever going to win that tie, you know. So, um, and like I said, it was great to see the lads when we, when we uh, relaunched the film as well. It was brilliant. Well, you said your biggest disappointment was losing the 1985 FA Cup final to Manchester United, which denied Everton the league, FA Cup and European Cup Winners' Cup treble. Now, I may be remembering this wrongly here, but I think this was the beginning of a little bit of an unwanted FA Cup final record that I think you still hold. Yeah, I'm, I'm led to believe it's a, a, uh, one of the quiz questions who's lost four cup finals. But uh, the first one, you know, would have been fantastic because that would have been the treble. And, and we know how difficult that is to do. Um, you know, people sometimes go through the career and not being able to play in cup finals. Um, you know, I was lucky enough to play in four, but obviously... It would have been nice to be first up rather than last up. Um, of course, the 1985-86 season uh, is the year you should have been having a crack at the European Cup, yet you never got the chance. Um, and the reason for that lies in your answer to the question, what would you like to change in football, to which you replied, hooliganism. Um, the mid-1980s was the zenith of football hooliganism in this country, and there, there were numerous terrible incidents of football-related violence, but none more infamous than the Heysel disaster which took place in Brussels, of course, in 1985, which led to all English clubs being banned from European competition. Um, Everton, probably the most uh, affected club by that ban, uh, were denied the opportunity to test itself against the very best in Europe over the next few, year, next few years. Um, what are your thoughts on the impact that it had on you, the other players, and Everton as a football club? Yeah, we, we get asked the question, as you can imagine, um, and it's difficult to quantify because that team, you know, hopefully would have gone on and, and done even better in, in the uh, European Cup. The only thing I would say that a lot of things have changed in football, some good and some bad, but I think in terms of the safety and the all-seater stadium, you know, there's some unbelievable stadiums about and you wouldn't want to have any kind of those disasters again, you know. So, um, but ultimately, you know, we'll never know uh, whether we would have been as, as good as we thought we were. Um, a lot of your old teammates from that Everton side are politically vocal on social media these days. Uh, and if we look at the 1986 profile uh, from the Everton programme, uh, it says that the TV shows you dislike the most are party political broadcasts. Was the dressing room full of that kind of talk between the likes of Reed, Lineker and Southall? The, the three probably most vocal on, on Twitter and that these days. Uh, and did you give it the swerve there in the dressing room too? No, I think if you, if you spoke to the lads, I can assure you it wasn't political in the dressing room that they were talking about. Um, but as, as time goes on, everybody makes their own sort of route in life, but it's not one that I get involved in. Mm. Um, I've just, I get a chance to get a plug, I've only just, just launched um, a football app called Grow Football. And uh, I asked Gary if he would retweet it. He's got mm -hmm. 7.6 million people. So uh, it, it, does have its, uh, it does have its good points as well. Well, 1986, 
Everton lost out to Liverpool in both the league and cup, um, but uh, we shan't dwell on that too long. Um, but you also missed out on a place in Bobby Robson's England squad for the World Cup in Mexico when it had looked likely uh, you would be included. Uh, you even made it into the Panini sticker album, so they were pretty confident that you were going to be selected. Um, remind everybody what prevented you from making it to Mexico um, because it then had a massive effect on your career for the next couple of years. Um, I believe it came in a tackle with Big Billy Whitehurst of Newcastle. Well, in 85, after the cup final, we went, the England squad went to uh, Mexico, which was pre-Mexico 86. Uh, and we, we did two weeks in Mexico uh, in preparation for the World Cup. And then we had a week in, uh, in the USA. And like you said, I, I was all, I was in that squad looking forward to it. I think it was myself and Mark Wright. Mark Wright broke his leg. Um, so he missed out. And, um, I had that tackle in the 1st of January 86, struggled, to be fair, till the end of the season. And then that was the first of, of six operations on the ankle to try and get myself back playing. So massive, massive disappointment. It's not never a good time to get an injury, but you know, I think I was 22, established you know, in trying to get in the England team and obviously success with Everton. So uh, it couldn't come in a worse time for me. Well, that couple of years out due to that injury must have, taken a huge physical and mental toll on you um, and once you were fixed uh, you took what was probably a bit of a step down to Sunderland from Everton at the time uh, but you came back and went on to play for another 10 years at the highest level and you must be one of the very few players to have played for both Sunderland and Newcastle uh, and to be remembered equally as fondly by both sets of supporters. Yeah when, like I said no injury is a good injury but having been out for well over two years you mentioned about stepping down. All I wanted to do was play football. Mm. And it was going to be difficult with Everton because I wasn't going to be first choice. Uh, I wanted to play. The connection was obviously with Dennis and when I knew him at Stoke. And initially I went up on loan for a month, uh, which in those days there were six games. And at the end of the end of the loan period, they, they wanted to sign me, which I agreed, which meant I had three years playing football. Uh, and I think the, from then onwards, there have been 40 plus games a year, which was brilliant. And then going on to what you said about going from Sunderland to Newcastle, takes a brave man to do that, I can assure you. Uh, but also takes a brave man to go back as well. Um, a lot of people have gone Newcastle, Sunderland or Sunderland, Newcastle. But I don't think anybody's gone Sunderland, Newcastle and back to, uh, back to Sunderland. But again, the, the North East is very much like Merseyside. Um, they judge you on the field and... I've been lucky enough to wherever I've gone, the supporters have, have, have been great with me, you know? Yeah. Um, so, Paul, what happened to you after you packed in playing football? And you mentioned about the app that you just launched. What else are you up to these days? Well, I think when I was 37, uh, Kevin Keegan was the manager at Fulham. He went to England. I took over at um, Fulham for, for just, well, just under a year. Uh, got the sack, as we spoke about before, went to Halifax, um, kept him up in the league, then I left there. I went to work with the FA for three years as a national coach. Um, and after that, I did a spell at Sunderland uh, in their academy and then got asked to work with the first team uh, when Dick Avogat came over. Uh, then Dick came back and I, was, uh, I worked with, with Dick and then he left, Sam Allardyce took over um, and then I was assistant manager with Sam. Sam left, uh, David Moyes came in and assistant manager with, with David, uh, and he left. And then uh, I left Sunderland uh, probably two and a half years ago. 
Um, John McDermott, who was the academy director at Tottenham, um, had seen the work I'd done before at uh, Sunderland. He invited me down, and that was probably two and a half years ago. Um, so I'm a elite development coach for uh, Tottenham as, as a consultant. I work with 23s down down to the under nines. Uh, over the last couple of years, we've been working on a football app, which is called Grow Football, which just gone live uh, this week in the Apple Store. So it's it's football, and it's uh, it's kept me busy. <laughs> well, what would 1980s you think of you now? And also, what do you think about yourself when you look back at how you were in the 1980s? Um, I wish I never had the injury, I'll be honest with you. Um, things might have been completely different, but you've got to get on with it. Uh, I managed to play till I was 37. Um, played at some great clubs. Uh, won some championships, won medals, uh, played for my country. Um, a little bit heavier now and a little bit more greyer. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, change anything. Um, I'm still in, in the football industry, which we say to young lads, it's, it's the best job to be in. If you can play, play as long as you can. Uh, and if you can't play, can you manage, can you coach? Because if somebody's going to pay you to, to do what you love, it's, it's a great job. Yeah. And finally, if you could go back to 1983 or 1986 and give yourself one bit of advice, what would it be? And before you answer, I have to tell you a relevant little story of my own here. In 1990 at Roker Park, when I was a schoolboy trialist at Sunderland, an experienced pro was asked to give us youngsters something useful to take forward in our fledgling football careers. And he told us, never have a shave on the day of a game because the sweat will irritate you and put you off your game. Any idea who that might have been? Well, as you can tell, I'm still doing that as as we are over those years because I hated to shave. So um, sometimes it, it, it's it's the stubble, the stubble's in. Um, so, but obviously, you you remembered. I do. Do you know what? I, I heeded those words and I stuck stuck with them at whatever level I played. You know, and I, don't worry, I didn't make the grade, but I'm not going to blame the advice for that. Um, anyway, yeah. <laughs> what word, what words of wisdom would you pass on to to help young Bracewell? Um. We, we've done a lot of stuff obviously in the lockdown and, and it's the thing that I would have done and we pass on to the young players is invest in yourself you know whatever it takes you have to put the time in it doesn't it doesn't just happen um, you know the biggest thing for me is, is spend as much time as you can playing football invest in yourself uh, technically sleep eat well and um, like I said before the rewards are so great it's the best job in the world to play football I can assure you Brilliant. Paul, that's our time up. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you, uh, to chat about these older in interviews and your career. Uh, thanks so much for being with us. And uh, as I said, it's been brilliant to speak to one of my favourite players when you, when you played for my team, Everton, back in the 80s. So thanks again. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to What Happened to You. You can find us across all the main podcast platforms, so please don't forget to subscribe. For updates about future guests and new episodes, follow us on Twitter at WHTYPod. For extra content related to what happened to you, including the original interviews that inspired this episode, visit our friends The Set Pieces at www.thesetpieces.com and follow them on Twitter at The Set Pieces. We'll be back again soon, so until next time, goodbye.